Now, last Sunday, we saw the kingdom of self-interest as represented by King Herod. And tonight, we're going to look at the second part of Mark chapter 6, and we'll be looking at Jesus the King. Now, as usual, an outline of the talk or a full transcript will be available on the table in the foyer, or if you're watching on the live stream, it'll be on the live stream page of the Bundy website. But more importantly, keep your Bibles open, because we're going to be looking at a number of Bible verses together. Let's pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you for Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he's the Lord, that he's our Savior. So please deepen uh, our view of Jesus, that we might trust him, love him, serve him, worship him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what should we be looking for in a leader? Now, it seems that in Australia, we want a leader who doesn't abandon his people in their hour of need. Now, in the summer of 2019, then Prime Minister Scott Morrison was criticised for taking holidays in Hawaii while devastating bushfires were burning Australian property and lives. When asked about why he wasn't here, he infamously replied, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I don't sit in a control room, which he later apologised for. Well, this summer, Anthony Albanese, our current Prime Minister, was criticised for spending three nights at the Australian Open Finals, chugging beers and eating ice creams. After having spent only four hours in Alice Springs, which is currently experiencing a crime, uh, a youth crime wave. Now, clearly, we want a leader who sticks with, identifies and suffers with his people. Now, this time last year, Russian forces invaded Ukraine and attempted to take over the capital, Kyiv, And the U.S. government offered Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, an opportunity to evacuate from Kyiv. Famously, he's reputed to have said, the fight is here, I need ammunition, not a ride. This, of course, became a meme that went viral on T-shirts and everywhere else. And since then, Zelensky has galvanized the country to resist the Russian advance. This former comedian has rallied world leaders to urge them to help Ukraine's much smaller army to fight the Russians. It seems that he is exactly the kind of leader that Ukraine needs. That is a great line, isn't it? When they make the Hollywood movie, I think uh, Keanu Reeves playing John Wick should play his character. I need guns, lots of guns. But is that what Ukraine needs? Is he always going to be the leader that Ukraine needs? Say, after the war. Uh, Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of Britain in World War II, and he galvanised the British people to resist Hitler's advances, famously telling them to never give in. He was described by a fellow politician at the time as the only man we have for this hour. But just before the official end of the war, Churchill was voted out of office. He was no longer the leader the country wanted or needed. Now, leaders are important, aren't they? God uses good leaders for the good of his people. Look at Deborah from the book of Judges, who led Israel to a victory against the Canaanites. But equally, a bad leader can adversely affect his people. Look at the many terrible kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. Now, we here at Bundy are coming to an important point in the life of our church. After more than 20 years of serving as senior pastor, Neil will be retiring soon. 
And as such, we're going to be searching for and voting on someone to replace him as senior pastor. Now, I'll put a disclaimer. It's not going to be me. I'm not ordained, and neither, neither do I think I'm suitable for the role. So permission to speak freely. It's a crucial decision who you vote for. It's important that we look for what God wants in a leader. We're going to do that tonight in this passage as we look at Jesus, the king that God wants for his people. And we should value what God wants in the king that he has chosen. Now, there are going to be two points from tonight's sermon, the king who feeds and the king who calms. Well, let's start by looking at the context of our passage. Verse 12, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, remember from last week in the first half of chapter 6, we saw Jesus the King extending his kingdom through his apostles. Jesus sent them out, six pairs of two apostles, and they went from village to village around Israel, pretty much doing the same things that Jesus did in his ministry, preaching, healing, driving out demons. Now it seems that they finished their back at home base with their king, high-fiving each other, and it seems that this mission trip has had some degree of success. Many people from different places have followed them. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while, for many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Well, like every good leader, Jesus is taking care of those he leads. He wants the apostles to rest, to recover after their time of service. Now, just for a moment, think about what Jesus himself is going through. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus has recently learned of his cousin John the Baptist's death. So imagine he's deeply grieving his own cousin's death, but he's still showing concern for his disciples. What a leader. Now, we're told in Luke's account that Jesus gathered with his disciples in Bethsaida in northern Galilee. Now, in Mark's account, they withdraw from the people by boat to go to a remote place, but many people saw them leaving and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And their final location must have been somewhere just outside of Bethsaida, maybe within running or walking distance. Now, we're told in Matthew's gospel that it is a large group of people, 5,000 men besides women and children. So there's many more than 5,000. Some commentators think it would have been around 14 to 15,000 people, about the size of a decent music festival like the Falls Festival. But it's a huge number for the day because considering the towns around Galilee like Capernaum and Bethsaida had about two to 3,000 people. So it's larger than these towns. Clearly, the disciples and Jesus are generating a buzz, a buzz that the Israel, Israel's leaders like Herod and the Romans would have been a little bit unsettled by. Now, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, occurs in all four Gospels. So we're going to take a little bit of a look from all four, but we're going to look at it from three perspectives, the crowd, Jesus, and the disciples. Now, firstly, what do you think the people gathered there are making of this event? John tells us, John 6, verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, the crowd see Jesus as a prophet, 
Now remember, they're in a remote wilderness area and Jesus has fed a large group of people miraculously. And when you're thinking of the Old Testament, you're probably thinking of Moses. Uh, Moses fed God's people with manna from heaven. He led them from captivity, from Egypt to the edge of the promised land through the wilderness. And Moses himself promised a great prophet like him in Deuteronomy 18. Now, the people want this great prophet to be their political king. Now, remember, Israel is like the Ukraine. It's an occupied land. And the people must have resented the Roman rule. And they must have resented having leaders like Herod, rotten royalty, who cared more for themselves and sucked up to the Romans than for the people. Now, what do you do when someone with great power like Jesus shows some interest in you? Well, you want to make him your king. And a crowd this size, well, that's not just a political group, is it? It's the beginning of an army, a rebellion against the Romans. They intend to make him king by force. In other words, they want a king to fight, to fight for them, to rebel against their enemies, to liberate their land. That's what the people see in Jesus. We need ammunition, not a riot. Now, in complete contrast to this, what does Jesus see at this gathering? Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Jesus looks at the crowd and he doesn't see an army for a king. He sees lost sheep who need a shepherd. Now that phrase immediately draws Mark's readers back to the Old Testament. Passages like Ezekiel 34 that Jane just read. Now God's people in the Old Testament were led astray by idolatrous kings, unfaithful priests. These leaders were meant to be the shepherds of Israel. Instead, they failed miserably and they were subject to God's judgment. And that resulted in God's people being led astray, forgetting God's law, turning to the false worship of idols. And now in the New Testament, under Herod and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they are no better. The people are still sheep without a shepherd. And it's the compassion of Jesus that leads him to feed the sheep. How does he do that? He begins to teach them many things. Now, back in chapter 1, when the disciples come to bring Jesus back to the big group of people who want healing, Jesus says, no, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. That is why I have come. You see, the priority of Jesus is to preach and teach. And when Jesus taught, he taught about the kingdom of God what the kingdom was like, how you enter the kingdom. When Jesus preached, he preached the gospel, the good news, that in spite of our sin against God, God wants to forgive all who turn away from him. Uh, God wants to forgive all those who trust him, who turn away from sin. And God's forgiveness for sin is not something you earn, but it is a gift of his grace, free to us, but paid for with the blood of Jesus on the cross. Now, that is the food that sheep without a shepherd need. Let me ask you, do do you agree with that statement? Do you agree with Jesus' statement that people are lost, they're sheep without a shepherd, and that what people need more than anything else 
is the teaching of the gospel. Uh, when I finished my commerce degree, I got a graduate position at one of the big four accounting firms. I'm not going to mention which one because of my next story. Now, this was a much sought-after job for accounting students. Uh, in that year, Emma, my wife, and I decided that I would work for a couple of years and then eventually head on a pathway to doing a ministry apprenticeship, Bible college, and eventually spend most of my time teaching the Bible for a living. Now, there were points that year that I wondered about staying in my accounting job because it was much more financially secure and people at least understood and respected accounting, which they didn't for ministry. Now, what helped to convince me, though, that this was the right path for me was our team, Team Weekend's retreat. So I was part of the audit team, and once a year, we went out on a retreat and the company spent lots of money on us to go to the Cape Shank RACV Resort. Great food, all the drinks paid for by the company, golf at the resort course, swimming, swimming pool, spa access. They even paid Kevin Sheedy, the current Essendon footy coach, to come and speak to us. But it was what happened after dinner. There was lots of alcohol and people were getting more and more drunk, more and more out of control. And Tim, the other Christian and I, decided that at the point when people were no longer coherent, that we would decide to go back to our rooms. The morning after, the gossip was spreading over breakfast. There were guys boasting that they were so drunk, they were throwing furniture into the swimming pool. Young female graduates were in various states of undress, in the spa, in the pool, being sleezed over by ma managers and partners of the firm. And to top it all off, a manager with a young wife and child back home slept with a female manager that night at the resort. Now, by day, these were some of the most professional and competent people in Collins Street. I mean, accounting students aspired to be these people. And when you actually had a real honest conversation with them, when they actually opened up honestly, they were often so insecure, so empty. So lost. Sinning against others. Being sinned against by others. Trying to fill that Jesus-shaped hole with anything else. They didn't need more money. They didn't need more education. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And I was convinced from that weekend that what people need more than anything else is Jesus and his gospel. Now, in Ezekiel's prophecy, it is the Lord himself who would come and shepherd his people. Ezekiel 34, verse 13. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Now, this prophecy speaks of the Lord himself gathering together his lost sheep, feeding them, and then this miraculous feeding that happens in our passage, well, it looks a lot like the prophecy from Ezekiel 34. Now, John's account tells us that it happened around the Passover festival. That's spring. Now, Israel, this dry, this dusty land, uh, during springtime becomes lush with green grass, 
And look at verse 39. Jesus had the massive crowd sit on the green grass. I like that touch, don't you? Which reminds you of Psalm 23, where God the shepherd leads his people to the green pasture. Now, this meal is in contrast to um, Herod's birthday feast last week, that lavish, self-indulgent feast all about himself. Here, God's people eat a simple meal of fish and bread until they are full and satisfied. And there's an abundance, 12 basketfuls, more than they began with. And when you put it all together, it's a beautiful scene, isn't it? It's this glimpse of, of what the feast in heaven will be like, this humble, satisfying meal of God with his people, the shepherd king feeding them in both body and soul. Now, how do the disciples think about all this? Because in Mark's account, I think they're the focus. It seems even like the crowd might have had no idea about the miracle. Jesus has transformed five small loaves to two dried fish. He's fed thousands of people with such meager resources. But it's the disciples who get to see what is going on firsthand in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. Now, I think the disciples' suggestion is quite practical. I mean, how could anyone hope to feed a massive mob like this? It's been a long day for them. It's been a long mission trip. I am sure these guys are completely exhausted. Now, imagine then when they hear the words of Jesus, you give them something to eat. That's a recipe for burnout. Now, you can hear the incredulous exasperation in their voice. Should we go out? to buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, that is 200 days of income for the average worker. That's the scale of what we're talking about to feed this crowd. Now, even if the disciples could find people who would sell them food in this remote location, they're frustrated, they're tired, they're exhausted. Now, of course, I think Jesus never intended them to feed his sheep because he was going to feed them himself. So why did he ask them? Why? To show them that they couldn't do it. They needed to rely on Jesus who can make something out of nothing. Uh, Over Easter 2021, during our second year of pandemic, I I hit the wall in my ministry. Uh, After a year of putting together live stream services, pivoting in and out of lockdown, trying to meet people over Zoom, remote learning with kids, I was fatigued struggling to keep things in my head. I was forgetting things. I lost motivation to see people because all I could see was overwhelming need. Resentment was building up in me, and looking back at it now, I had the symptoms of mild to moderate burnout. Neil arranged for me to see someone who helped me think through things, and one of the things I had to work through was my picture of ministry. That's it up there. For a number of years, I felt that my role here at this church was to plug leaks in a damn wall, except there were so many leaks that I just couldn't do it anymore. Now, there's nothing biblical about that picture. It's just a picture that I formed in my head. And what I see now is the pride behind it, that it was up to me, using my own strength, my own gifts. That's pride, isn't it? 
there's a better picture. My two roles here at Bundy is under shepherd and sheep. As a sheep, I need the shepherd just like you. I, as an under shepherd, answer to the chief shepherd, Jesus, for his sheep. He is the one who feeds his sheep because they are his sheep. He bought them them with his own blood. My job is to pray and to point the sheep to their chief shepherd. Now, that is a much healthier and more sustainable picture. Now, if you're anything like me and think that you must accomplish things and keep things going in your own strength, you need to learn the lessons that disciples and I need to keep learning, and that is you cannot do anything without Jesus. Now, in the feeding of the crowd, Jesus wanted the disciples to see that he wasn't just a nationalistic Jewish king. He's the son of God who's full of power and that his father's riches are at his disposal. Now, soon these disciples, they'd be the key leaders in his kingdom and they were not to build this kingdom on their own strength but the strength of Jesus. But Jesus also wanted the disciples to see that he was the son of God who was full of compassion and love, that his power was not going to be used to kill and destroy, but to care for and to provide. This is how uh, the commentator N.T. Wright puts it. We're probably meant to make the connection between Jesus' compassion for the crowds and his action with the fish and bread. God's kingdom is not simply a matter of power, but also of overflowing love, and the two here go inextricably together. You see, power without love destroys, and that is what we see with many leaders today. Now, there's more for the disciples to see if they look closely. Now, at this memorable meal, the disciples saw Jesus blessing the bread and breaking it. Exactly one year later at Passover, Jesus would preside over another memorable meal. And again, he would bless the bread and he would break it in front of the disciples. And that bread would come to symbolize the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And on that particular night, his disciples were ready to draw swords to fight with their king. But this king does not fight. He feeds. This king doesn't come with swords and spears. He comes with sacrifice and service. This king is not about control, but compassion. The disciples struggled to see Jesus, their shepherd king, because of who they wanted Jesus to be. They wanted the warrior king. They wanted positions of power. They wanted to wear those hats, make Israel great again. What's the leader we want for our country here in Australia? We want someone who can manage inflation, interest rates, housing prices. We want someone who can get race relations between white and black Australia right. We want someone who can assure our security against China. These are the things we want. What about the leader you need? When you're standing at the edge of death and you're wondering what happens next, gripped with fear, which leader helps you then? Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for you and he opened a way for you to life after death. He is the only leader who can do that. What's the leader we want for our church? 
someone with a strong vision, someone who's multi-gifted, someone who can manage a large team of staff and volunteers, someone who's got good relational skills with people outside the church. Now, these are the things churches often want. We as a church will be full of regret if we voted for a man who had all those traits and yet Jesus was missing in his life. The senior pastor you need must know his constant need for Jesus. The senior pastor who you need to vote for wants to share Jesus with others over every other priority. The senior pastor you need has to be full of compassion, like his shepherd. Now, our second point tonight is the king who calms. Now, after feeding the crowd, Jesus dismisses them. He sends the disciples, though, back to Bethsaida by boat. Now, Jesus himself, he retreats up a mountain to spend time in prayer with God. Now, this is not the first time Jesus does this. Now, you can imagine Jesus full of grief over his cousin John, And he's probably disappointed by his disciples' continued lack of understanding of who he is. And he's probably dealing still with the frenzied demands of the crowd to make him king. And so it's important for him to spend time aligning his will with the will of his father God. Now in the last few verses of this passage, we see that in dealing with a strong wind, they are blown off course, the disciples, and they end up in Genesaret, not Bethsaida. Now, there in Genesaret, Jesus continues to draw a lot of people through healing, and we're not going to focus on those last few verses, but we're going to focus on what happens on Lake Galilee, verse 47. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. Now, we're talking somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And from his mountaintop prayer retreat, Jesus can see the disciples in the distance struggling to row against the strong headwinds. They must have been so tired by now. So he decides to encourage them by walking past them on the water, as you do if you're Jesus, okay? Now, why past them? It's a bit strange. Well, if you remember once in the Old Testament, Moses saw the glory of God go past him as a means of encouraging Moses. And I think something like this is going on here. Walking past the disciples, Jesus is showing himself as the glorious king who can control storms. Remember that? He controlled the storm back in chapter 4, and he's reassuringly present with the disciples. He hasn't left them. Now, unfortunately, that plan backfires because they're even more freaked out in verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now it's not the first time, is it, that he's performed a miracle on a boat. That time they were on the verge of drowning from that storm, but Jesus rebuked the storm and there was calm. But the disciples were afraid of him, not the storm after that. And here they are still terrified of him. So Jesus speaks to the disciples, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now we're going to do a little bit of Greek and Hebrew study here, okay? Quite literally, the Koine Greek, a go, a me, translated as it is I, in our translations, can also be translated I am. 
Now, back in the Old Testament, when Moses was speaking with God through the burning bush, Moses asked God to reveal his name. And in the Greek translation of Exodus 3, it is the same Greek words, ego eimi, I am. In Hebrew, we use the word Yahweh. That's the name that's translated in our English Bibles as the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into an in-depth study of what that phrase I am means, but in short, it's this big statement about God. It's about God's self-existence. He wasn't I was or I will be. It is I am. And he's not dependent on anyone else because of this I am. He just is I am. He's eternal. He doesn't rely on anyone. So when you find the words I am on the lips of Jesus, what's he claiming? He's claiming to be God, the eternal God. There's no longer any need to be afraid because I am, I, the living God, am right here with you in your struggles. The wind and waves are nothing to me. And to prove it, Jesus immediately hops in the boat and the wind calms. According to the ancient Jewish document, the Talmud, Jewish seafarers would have a wooden paddle on their ships engraved with, I am that I am, Yah, the Lord of hosts. And whenever there was a wave that they thought could sink the boat, they would strike that wave with the paddle with the expectation that God would squash that wave. Job chapter 9 says, He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The king of creation is in the boat with the disciples. The king who treads on the waves, the king who turns chaos into calm. And sadly, the disciples, they still don't recognize their king. And Mark says that they didn't understand about the loaves, their hearts were hardened, but that would not always be the case because eventually they did get who Jesus was. Apart from Judas... All the disciples would either die as martyrs for their faith or they were exiled because of Jesus. Gone was that ambition for personal glory and nationalistic pride. Peter considered the eyewitness for Mark's gospel. Well, he's recorded as having been crucified in Rome at the command of Emperor Nero. And one of the beliefs is that he was crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Now, how do you die like that? How do you meet the chaos like that? It's in knowing the king who calms. That's the leader you want the next time you face chaos. The king who will never leave you or forsake you. The king who suffered for you. The king who promised to be with you till the end of the age. Do you know him? Do you know the king who will calm you in your chaos? Pastor Alexander and his wife Ekaterina pastor a church in Balaklia in Ukraine. And when the Russian forces invaded, they stayed and helped many in their large church escape Russian-controlled territories. He would also bring food back into Ukraine when he did these runs. Alexander kept running Sunday services, and he said, I just saw fear in people. 
And when you're near them as a pastor, it just inspired people, he said. At the beginning of May last year, he was arrested by Russian forces and beaten severely for two days. At first, I didn't know what they wanted from me, he said, and then I began to realize the man interrogating me, he was making it clear, we won't let you live here. There will only be one church here, the Russian Orthodox Church. They hit and they kicked Alexander everywhere, bruising his whole body and breaking his left arm. Alexander prayed to God. The God he knew released Peter from prison. I felt that God was silent, he said. It was awful. That is the moment you need God to speak, and he was silent. Alexander's wounds were so severe he was taken to the medical center across the street. And after a two-week stay there, his wife Ekaterina was allowed to bring him home, and she struggled to recognize him. His wounds were so bad. That release showed that God was with me. He showed his faithfulness, Alexander said. And I realized that when God is silent, it doesn't mean he's not there. Balaklia was liberated by Ukrainian forces in September, and Alexander's church began to distribute humanitarian aid and to pray with people. Now there are many people who come to Sunday service, Alexander said. They just want fellowship with us. They want to spend time with us. Alexander is praying for his church, but he's also praying for his captors. If at least one person heard the gospel and was somehow touched by it and give him repentance, I want to see this man in the kingdom of heaven, he said. And it will be a great joy for me if I come to the kingdom of heaven and see one of these who have repented before God. I'm humbled and inspired when I read of leaders like Alexander and Ekaterina. I want to be that kind of leader. Leaders who don't abandon the sheep, but feed them. Leaders who are calm in the chaos. Leaders who love their enemies, who despise them. And how do you live like that? How do you love like that? Because you know the king who feeds and the king who comes. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father God, we thank you for what we've heard of Jesus today. He is your shepherd king, full of compassion and full of power that he could feed the sheep with his teaching and he could feed them with his creative power. Father, thank you too that Jesus is the great I am, present with us in our struggles, in our chaos. Gracious Father, please deepen, enrichen our view of Jesus, that we would turn to him to be fed by his gospel and that we would trust him in the chaos. Help us to be people who love and lead like Jesus as well in the opportunities you give us. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.